2: Hello and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope for Tuesday, August 17th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, with my guest, Sergeant Goodchild, the founder and executive director of Active Healing, a 501c3 organization actively healing children by honoring and integrating the natural order of human development. Our topic today is Neurological Reorganization for Brain Injury, the Relationship of Structure and Function with Therapeutic Applications. Welcome, Sarge.
3: Uh, Hello, Terry. How are you? It's an absolute pleasure to be on your show today. I think what you're doing through Autism One and through this program is a tremendous service to the, to the autism community. And it's truly an honor to be part of your show today. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much, Sergeant. it was a uh, pleasure to have you at Autism One speaking and sharing your good information and the work that you do through active healing. And you have a very interesting story, too, that, that um, can give our listeners great cause for optimism. Before you turned five years old, a few diagnostic labels were associated with you. What were they?
3: Um, The ones that I know were given to me um, as a formal diagnosis were epilepsy and learning disabled. I was considered learning disabled. Um, For those reasons, it was decided that I should be put in an early education setting um, to maximize whatever potential I had in the classroom. Um, but in order to do that, I needed to get vaccinated. Um, and that's, I, that. while my, my early life certainly set me up for a reaction, um, I believe that was the straw that broke the camel's
2: back. Okay, so let's backtrack a little bit. You alluded to your early life. Um, how do you believe that the various factors that occurred, and, and please share with our listeners what they were, uh, contributed to this? How did this come about?
3: Well, my, my birth process was not the natural process that it, that it should have been. Um, my mother had had um, several miscarriages. I'm the oldest of three kids, and my mother had had several miscarriages before she um, became pregnant with me. And I believe, although it was never confirmed by her, that she was most likely taking a medication to make sure that her pregnancy with me remained a viable one. Um, I did not come on my scheduled due date, and my doctor, who um, had left very specific instructions with his staff that he was to be the only one to deliver me because of my mother's history, um, wasn't available. When I, when I decided it was time to to be born, and my mother's pregnancy was somewhat delayed as a result of that. Um, And when I was delivered, I had the umbilical cord wrapped a few times around my neck, and there was some degree of oxygen starvation. Um, My mother, uh, obviously I was her first child, and my mother had enough concerns at the time to ask if I was gonna be okay. But the medical doctors in the room at the time didn't have a good answer for her. And we have to remember that this was back in 1969. So they didn't have the tools and the technology that exists today um, to have given her any kind of definitive answer about what my future might look like. But they did say to her, we should be able to tell you how he's doing by the age of four.
2: And you talked about a setup, how your earlier experiences could have set you up for vaccination injury, and I've heard that, too, um, in a a sort of chiropractic context that, say, for example, um, the child's clavicle is broken through the birthing process, um, you know, or different spinal um, situations, these things can set the child up for... Uh, vaccination injury. Um, we know that there are different birthing injuries, like premature cord clamping. How do you feel that that was a setup? What do you think were the, how would you weight the various factors of oxygen deprivation and subsequent vaccine injury?
3: Well, I think it, I I. I am a firm believer and advocate for chiropractic care, um, as well as cranial sacral therapy and, and many other things. I think, um, the, the fact that the cord was wrapped around my neck um, and that there was some degree of oxygen starvation, I think you have two um, possibly compounding factors there. I think that there's a very good chance that some of my cervical vertebrae, the, the um, vertebrae in my neck, were malpositioned as a result of the birthing process, and you compound that with oxygen starvation, and you have... Um, two of the three factors that are responsible for derailing a child's um, developmental process. Um, As your listeners may already be aware, um, there are three factors. I think there are three sort of headlines um, that many other things fall under that can disturb the developmental process. Uh, So we look at the physical factors. Certainly, you know, there can be over-obstetric manipulation of the neck, which there may very well have been in my case, or it may have simply just been the physical factor, may have been that, you know, the cord wrapped around my neck presented, you know, a force that wasn't natural in the birthing process that upset, again, my cervical vertebrae. Uh, Then you have uh, chemical factors. That can be nutritional products um, that the child is taking, um, that are beneficial for them. It can also be products that the child is getting, such as gluten, casein, or pharmaceutical products or you know, environmental toxins that the child is ingesting or absorbing um, in some way that derail the developmental process. In my case, it was oxygen starvation. Oxygen is the most essential nutrient that the brain needs in order to thrive. You can only live for three minutes without oxygen. Um, And so while I didn't go, obviously, completely without oxygen, I was oxygen-starved. And so there's a chemical insult. So you have a chemical insult, you have a physical insult, um, and you set the stage for someone not progressing through the developmental sequence as they should. And um, that further breaks down the system because now the child is not getting the... um, tactile and kinesthetic feedback that he should be getting which is going to help organize the brain.
2: So what did the medical community have to offer at that time? You said that you were born in 1969 and so your early childhood would have been in that period, 1969, 1974-ish. What did they have to offer you?
3: Um, You know, at first it was nothing. At first, um, what would happen? Is I would have these episodes where I would suddenly jerk, um, and they didn't last very long. And my parents could always blame it on something else that was going on at the time. They could always find an excuse for one of these sudden jerky movements of mine. It might be that the cat jumped down off the off the cabinet, or. It may have been that our dog barked at a bird outside the window or a car drove by the house or someone slammed a door. There was always something that they could blame these jerky movements on. And that was confirmed by my local pediatrician at the time who simply diagnosed me with an immature startle reflex. Um, And my parents were assured that it wasn't a huge It wasn't a big issue that um, it would eventually, I would grow out of it and I would be fine. Um, That of course was not the case. The case was that um, those were seizures. I was having epileptic seizures at the time. And as my development went on, instead of my growing out of it, those seizures became worse and uh, until they were fairly debilitating.
2: So they gave you medication, anti-epileptics?
3: They gave me, I was on, uh, I can remember taking Dilantin, Quanapin, Mebrol, um, Valium, and it was generally um, three of these at a time. Sometimes it was more. And I was on maintenance doses of Benadryl because I also had a tremendous amount of upper respiratory infections. Um, So I was pretty much on maintenance doses of Benadryl throughout the year as well.
2: And what did all of this medication do
3: to you? Um, it, it's, it, well, it's what it did and it's what it didn't do. <laughs> what it didn't do was successfully control my seizures. Um, so de- despite being toxic on adult um, levels of these medications, I was very toxic. My eyes were pretty much swollen shut and my gums were so inflamed that my teeth couldn't come through. Um, I was, uh, uh, of those years, one of the most prominent memories that I have is the amount of drooling that I used to do. Um, and it was, it was nothing that anyone should have to experience. Um, so massively toxic um, levels of medication without successful seizure control, um,
2: so that's what the medical system had to offer you. What did the educational system have to offer you? Uh,
3: the educational system, if you can believe it, was probably even more traumatic for me, um, because I was an able-bodied enough boy that I could get around on the playground, and I could do, um, you know, uh, I could interact with my peers, um, but my but my interactions were not in any way typical. And so the school setting was a difficult setting for me because I was bullied and teased ruthlessly by both the girls and the boys. Um, My teachers didn't have any understanding, really, of what I was going through, and there wasn't the sort of politically correct awareness that we have in schools today. That didn't exist in the early 70s. So I was oftentimes treated as though I had something that another student could catch. Um,
2: but what did they it, offer you educationally? in the classroom?
3: Right. So educationally what happened was I was determined to have obviously very, I was considered mentally retarded and uneducable. And for a child with my level of um, disability, it was considered an appropriate educational setting for me to be in the back of the classroom in a study carol which for those who don't know what a study carol is, it's the same sort of thing that you'd find in your public library. It's a desk with three walls around it. Um, So I was not able to see the blackboard. I was not able to see my fellow students. And I was really not able to receive any kind of good instruction, obviously, in that setting. Um, And yet, at the same time, the school was fulfilling um, their legal responsibility to educate me.
2: All right, and when we come back from break, we're going to find out what your parents decided to do about all of this. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
5: Come.
2: we're back with Sergeant Goodchild, the Founder and Executive Director of Active Healing, who had a marvelous recovery from earlier insults and debilitations as a child. So, Sarge, tell us how this happened. Did your parents accept the the prognosis or the lack of uh, options of the medical community and educational system? My, par- my, my
3: parents were incredibly frustrated with the medical community. And, again, we're going back many years. And... Um, So the sort of technology that would allow us to communicate um, much better with our medical doctors today didn't exist back then. There was no internet. There was no chat. There was, you know. um, And different doctors were prescribing different levels of medications for me without seemingly communicating well with the other doctors who were doing similar things. And it was an incredibly frustrating time for my parents. And in the meantime, my mother was volunteering for a family who is doing neurological reorganization for their daughter. Um, my father went over to, to witness it um, because my mother was coming back with, with incredible sco- stories about this little girl and how much progress she was making. And he left and in tears. And he couldn't understand why my mother was going over to this family's house a couple of days a week and volunti- volunteering her time To help with their child, when clearly this was the therapy that may be beneficial for me. So it was shortly thereafter that they went and they met with a physical therapist in um, Pennsylvania whose name was Art Sandler. And Art was the first person who told my parents that they were never going to be able to find a successful treatment for me if they continued to focus their time on the symptoms. And that all of my symptoms, um, the, the the I was diagnosed with, as I've already said, mental retardation and epilepsy, but a lot of people spoke of me as a child with autism, and um, there was a concern that I might have mild cerebral palsy. There was all sorts of different diagnoses that were thrown at me. Um, all during a time when I was, as I've already said, very heavily medicated. And it just made absolute sense, and it gave my parents a sense of something that they could do, that they could take responsibility of in the privacy of their own house to make a difference in my future. And um, so I was eventually brought down, Art evaluated me, and he constructed a developmentally-based program for my neurological reorganization. And um, within nine months of implementing that program, I was off of every seizure medication that I'd been taking for the past four years or better. And I have been seizure-free since that day. Um, So that was sometime before my, between nine and a half or so years of age and 10. Um, And I'm now 40, going on 41 and I haven't had a seizure in over 30 years.
2: Wow. Okay, so there's a real paradigm shift there. Don't focus on the symptoms.
3: Instead, do what? Get at the root cause, and the root cause is a brain injury, Um, a brain injury that was likely sustained uh, initially at birth or perhaps even prior to birth with, you know, if my mother was taking some sort of medication to prolong you know, or make her pregnancy with me a viable one, Um, and then the insults at birth, and then later on the additional insult, I believe, of being vaccinated.
2: Okay. Uh, I have heard, too, about uh, terbutaline used to prevent preterm labor and uh, how that has affected some children who eventually were diagnosed with autism. So you were eight years old, and your parents were presented with this, this new concept, and I assume that concept was one of neuroplasticity.
3: It was. It basically said that, you know, in, in the world of a, of a child with autism, we often hear about the windows of opportunity being closed at certain ages for certain functions, and I don't believe in that. I believe that the windows get painted shut, so to speak, but all you need is a good putty knife and you can get those windows wide open again without, without, it's work and it's hard work, um, but it's not impossible to do. So right. those, th- oh, those windows of opportunity are always can be opened again through neurological reorganization.
2: Okay, um, and you've made a point about uh, it's some about being able to teach skills in the future. Right. Um,
3: so what we have to understand is that, um, or what I would ask your listeners to understand, is that these are skills that a child acquires from the, time that, from the time of birth or even before birth up and through the first, especially the most important time, is the first year of life. First year of life and when one child is learning how to roll over when they're learning how to tummy crawl when they're learning how to creep on their hands and knees and ultimately get up and learn how to balance and stand and ultimately walk, run, and do everything else that they do in that first year of life. These are all acquired skills. And because they're acquired skills, we can go back and we can teach them. So we can look at a child's developmental history. And rather than basing it on an expected group of skills based on their chronological age, we can go back and we can look at them historically from a developmental perspective and we can see what stages they've missed out on, and then we can teach those stages to them and allow them to benefit. So instead of it being a deficit-based paradigm in which we're looking at an 8-year-old kid as though he's a typical 8-year-old kid and seeing which 8-year-old skills he's missing, We're looking at an eight-year-old child and we're looking at them developmentally and we're seeing if they missed out on any skills as a four-month-old, as a six-month-old, as an eight-month-old, so on and so forth.
2: Okay. And I want to ask you about that in just a minute, but I want to backtrack for a second here because I was perceiving some question marks going up above some listeners' heads about the vaccinations and something you said earlier. You mentioned having to get shots to go to school, at least that's what was told yeah. to your parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the prevailing uh, mandates and such were, the t- exemptions were at the time, but then you mentioned that you were drooling a lot. Was there some sort of relationship there? Because I know that mercury toxicity can make children drool, and I, I assume that there was mercury um, in at least part of the vaccinations that you received.
3: You know what, It's a that's a very interesting question. Um, and I'm not sure I have a good concrete answer for you, but this I can tell you. My mother says that after I got my measles vaccination, um, and to be honest with you, I'm not even sure if that was a combination shot back then or not, but she told me that I didn't produce any saliva for, like, Eight months after that vaccination, aye aye. aye. And so, it, she always thought my mother and I disagreed on the whole vaccine policy in this country. She always saw it as, um, thank goodness, I got the vaccine and I didn't get the actual measles because the measles probably would have killed me.
2: Uh, you know what? You know what I have to say when people say stuff like that to me. In my own in my own child's case, it, I I allowed him to get the shot because I thought it was going to protect him from measles. Now he has permanent measles. Right. And um,
3: and you and I are on the same page in that respect, Harry. You know, I obviously if uh, if there's an adverse reaction, which I would certainly consider that to be an adverse reaction then you have not done anything to support the child's neurological health. Instead, you've undermined it. And, you know, I, I, it's not a risk that I would choose to take with my
2: own child. Okay, well, thanks for going back with me a moment. Now, let's move back to what you were saying a few minutes ago. How did the developmental milestones impact the subsequent emergence of higher functioning brain levels? Why are parents you know, made to track all of these developmental milestones?
3: You know, I think it's interesting. I think that a lot of times when a parent brings their child into a professional, PT, OT, speech-language therapist, whatever it might be, um, we have a tendency to look at the, at the movement disorders that these children present with as a separate output problem. It, it's, dis- it's separate and distinct from the autism that the parents are going to the professional to treat. And my opinion is that nothing could be further from the truth, that the movement disorder is actually one of the core contributing factors to where the child is in their neurological health today.
2: Wow, well that's another paradigm shift right there.
3: Right, and, and that is because motor activity and behavior is not just a response, but it's a system for receiving and elaborating mental knowledge, um, and it's got uh, all motor acts have a, and a, a perceptual and a cognitive consequence to them. Um, is that, am I being clear or am I? Very cool. Yes, yeah. it's clear to me. Um, so when a, basically when a child is learning how to tummy crawl, which is a very important skill for all kids to learn they are laying down um, the the tactile and the kinesthetic prerequisites that they need in order to go forward into each next subsequent level of development. And while they're doing that, they're challenging different areas of their brain. The crawling on the stomach is specifically stimulating the pons level of their brain. And as they stimulate that, they help push the myelin coating up further and further and further into the into the brain.
2: Okay. I think we're jumping ahead a little bit. So if you could please first explain for our listeners what myelin is
3: before we get a break. Yes. I think um, all of your listeners have probably heard of um, MS. MS is a demyelinating disease. Myelin is the fatty coating that surrounds the nerves that allow the electrical... Um, impulses to travel th- through them efficiently um, and so while a child is born with an intact brain or at least we hope they are the myelin the process of myelination has not finished itself so there are many areas of the brain that are not fully uh, utilizable by the child because that myelin hasn't hasn't been pushed up far enough into the brain
2: all right, and we'll talk more about this when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back.
4: Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness.
5: Come.
6: Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way. With celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages, Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to
1: Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We're back with Sergeant Goodchild, founder and executive director of ACT. Healing, and that website is www.activehealing.org, and Sergeant and Goodchild made an amazing recovery from seizures. It took about nine months when he was about nine and a half years old. His seizures went away, and Sarge was part of that something called masking. Yes, something,
3: yes, masking is uh, technically known as hypercapnia, and it is a very safe procedure to do when done correctly. And ultimately, it can lead to as much as 40% more oxygen in the brain. Um, And I don't want to go into too many specifics about how to do it on the radio, because I know that there are a lot of great parents out there um, with the best of intention of helping their child. Um, But masking needs to be something that's undertaken with a professional. Right. Um, with some guidance, but the essence of it is um, we've all seen someone who's hyperventilating and they grab the brown paper bag and they start breathing in and out of the brown paper bag what the person is breathing back in is obviously the carbon dioxide that they're exhaling Um, when the carbon dioxide builds up enough in their blood the chemoreceptors pick up the chemical receptors in the body say, you know, we need to balance out the amount of carbon dioxide versus oxygen we have in the blood, and so the body is forced into two simultaneous reactions. One is that we start breathing from the lower lobes of our lungs, so we start taking much deeper breaths, and the other reaction is that we dilate all the blood vessels that are bringing oxygen to the brain, so suddenly you're taking these big, deep, filling breaths, and you're you're putting that oxygen into your blood, and the blood is being carried on super highways to the brain where it can really nourish the brain. Um, and for a lot of kids who are having seizures, or just delayed in any case, um, but especially the kids with seizures, really re- require getting much more oxygen to their brain because they might be oxygen-deprived. Um, they're not oxygen-starved. But they're oxygen deprived, so they're just not getting as much as they need to really thrive. And it can obviously, not having enough oxygen, can cloud your decision-making process, and it can make it um, it can make it obviously very difficult for you to be focused. Um, so I think it has a role in hyperactivity. I think it has a role in distractibility. I think it has a, obviously a very strong role in seizure activity. Um, And it can be a very healthy thing to do for a child when done with proper supervision and planning.
2: All right. And if you want to get in touch with Sarge and learn more about this, please visit his website at www.activehealing.org. Before we get back into talking about myelination, Sarge, what do you think has altered the typical developmental motor experiences of children with autism and what are the consequences
3: of this? Well, I think we go back to our three core things. We've got our physical, our emotional, and our chemical insults that we can receive. Um, And we can receive almost all of those insults right at the moment of birth or even leading up to birth. Um, We've got things like epidurals, and we've got pitocin, and we've got cesarean sections, and, and we've got all sorts of instruments like vacuum extractors and forcep deliveries and... There's all sorts of things that can happen during the birthing process that exposes the child to things that may be essential and necessary to saving that child's life. Um, In my opinion, oftentimes they're done more as conveniences um, for the doctor or perhaps even for the family. Um, But what we need to be aware of is if these interventions are going to be used. We need to understand the consequences of using those interventions. We have to understand that there are very concrete things that happen as a result of those interventions. And we need to inform parents about what they can do to help their child get back on track as far as their development is concerned. Um, Because it can be a fairly easy process if if we get started right away. And it can be a much more complicated process if it's something that we're not addressing until the child is 8, 10, or fifteen years old.
2: Okay, very well put. Well, are there things that we should be looking for in infancy to jumpstart any needed remediation?
3: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I think we. I think I would like to see all parents leaving the hospital with a with a clear understanding of what should be happening at what stages in their child's life, um, especially from a motor perspective. Um, it's it's very easy and we even have calendars and whatnot that are marketed towards new parents so that they can track when the first tooth falls out and you know when they get their first haircut, and when the child rolls over and when the child does different skills at different times. Um, I would like to make sure that all kids are um, crawling on their stomachs from um, their earliest months up until they're about eight months old. Um, At eight months, that's when I like to see kids get up on their hands and knees and begin to creep. Um, And then at some time around 12 months, they should be getting up and experimenting with balancing on two feet. and getting ready to take their first steps and walk. I think uh, what we have in the general population, I'm not sure if this is as prevalent in the community that would be listening to this radio um, program, but in the general population, there seems to be a rush to get our kids up and standing as early as possible because for some reason we equate that with greater intelligence. Oh, my child was up and walking at eight months is, you know, a banner that a lot of parents carry around with a sense of pride. And to me, that's a huge concern uh, because to me that tells me that the child did not get enough of the earlier skills accomplished. Um, and it is almost certain that that child is going to have some sort of either academic or emotional um, challenge as a result of the early experience of walking.
2: Wasn't there some sort of a story about um, a tribe of Indians in South America who couldn't do artwork because they'd never crawled on the ground because of reptiles or some such?
3: There's all sorts of different stories like that. And I think what's really important to point out, um, the, one of my favorite books is a, are, it's a kind of a photography um, book it's called Babies Celebrated. And it's a photographic exploration of how different cultures around the world raise their kids. And um, when I talk about the importance of crawling on the stomach and creeping on hands and knees and and getting up and walking at these different um, developmental stages, we're talking about Western cultures and we're talking about kids who are eventually going to be sitting in classrooms. And we put an... very heavy emphasis on reading. If you're growing up in a different part of the world, maybe in the jungle somewhere in the Amazon or somewhere else, reading is not going to be as significant um, or have any significance in your culture. Whereas being able to, you know, be a successful hunter is going to be much more relevant in your life. So, the developmental experiences that we're talking about as um, as first world countries, as heavy literate countries, are are those that promote those type of academic skills in a child, um, and different skills and therefore different developmental processes are totally appropriate for different cultures. Does that make
2: sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. But shouldn't even shouldn't the other cultures? Uh, isn't it important to the brains of the children in the other cultures to have experience, for example, cross-pattern crawling? Um, you know, it's it's
3: from my perspective, I would say yes, most likely it is. Um, but I'm not an anthropologist, and so it's it's very hard for me to say. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to take my prejudices on what I feel is important for a child and place them on another culture.
2: Okay, that's fine. Let's just get back into the myelination and the development of the brain and the higher brain centers then. So how do the developmental experiences correspond with the developmental milestones that correspond with myelination and the development of higher brain centers? Um,
3: well, so... Um, so 've got this we've got this child who's having these sensory experiences um, and those sensory experiences are challenging dependent on depending uh, if we're looking at crawling again on the stomach. One of the things that's happening is the child is, is developing secondary curves in their back for instance. Um, we've got a child who's if if everything is being done correctly, is reaching out and away from their body with an open hand, and then as they move forward on the floor, they're stimulating the palms of their hands um, in a reciprocal type of pattern. They're digging with their toes. um, So they're arching the bottom of their feet. They're stretching their heel cords. They're stimulating all of the most tactile, tactile tactilely sensitive areas of their body. So we can see there's this enormous, potential for growth and development of all of these different systems what's underlying all that is what's going on in the pons so while they're going through these movements the area of the brain that is getting the the most stimulation from that activity is the pons as a result of the activity that's taking place within that you're helping to mature and organize that part of the brain and you're helping to um, complete the myelinization process of that part of the brain, uh, and that means that that part of the brain is going to be able to have 100% of its function, 100% of the time. And the pons is responsible for a lot of the a lot of the issues that a child with autism may face can be traced back to issues within that part of their neurology.
2: All right, and we're going to pick up with the midbrain when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymetica. We'll be right back.
4: Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: We're back with Sergeant Goodchild, the Founder and Executive Director of Active Healing, whose website is www.activehealing.org. And if we don't get to the remediation parts of this interview, then we're going to have Sarge back on October 5th or October 12th. But I encourage listeners in the meantime to visit www.activehealing.org and contact Sarge if you want to get a jump start on that information. That he'll be presenting on October 5th or October 12th back here with us at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Well, Sarge, before the break you were talking about the ponds. Let's move to the midbrain. What does the midbrain affect for children on the spectrum with autism, ADD, and ADHD? Um, the midbrain is mostly about the child's ability
3: to organize their life. Um, lots of people in just the general population have some degree of midbrain disorganization. Um, the midbrain is, um, when I speak of the midbrain, I speak of it in functional terms. So it involves uh, many different structures of the brain, including the cerebellum. Um, and it, when, when I evaluate kids on the autism spectrum, it's, it's very rare for their midbrains to not be involved but it is also very rare for their midbrains to be more involved than their pons. So while they show disorganization at this midbrain level, they show greater disorganization at the level of the ponds. Um, we evaluate midbrain function by looking at several different things, um, but specifically the one that I put the heaviest weight on Is how well organized a child can creep, and again, that's on their hands and knees, that's up like a dog or a horse. Um, and as far as what the midbrain, um, the midbrain controls, it's so many different functions. It's so many different structures that there are a lot of different functions associated with it. Um, but I think of the police. I think of the midbrain as being sort of like a police officer, who's directing traffic. Um, the midbrain organizes and and directs traffic from the lower centers of the brain to the upper centers of the brain.
2: All right, and can you describe for our listeners, please, what the function structure loop is? The function structure
3: loop, yes, certainly. Um, as we as we go through these func- as we go through functions of crawling and creeping and walking, et cetera, um, there are structures that are associated with those. I've already talked a little bit about from the perspective of crawling, some of the structures that, that evolve, such as, you know, the um, curves in the back and the arches in the bottom of the feet. A lot of kids with autism are also tend to have, be flat-footed and they walk on their toes, and that's directly because they didn't get experience crawling on their stomach. Um, when we look at when we look at the function structure loop, basically what we're doing is we're tying together very specific functions with the structures that they help create. And these are both physical structures in the body, such as um, primary curves and secondary curves in the spine, but it is also neurological structures such um, such as the pons and the midbrain and the cortical structures. So the very simple way to look at that is that with crawling, you're looking at the pons, with creeping, which is a higher mobility and movement, you're looking at all the midbrain structures, including the cerebellum. Um, and with all of your upright um, bipedal or you know, your upright postures on two feet, you're looking at the cortical structures. So to stimulate someone's cortex, you're going to do things like hopping, skipping, jumping, and getting them on a program of running. To stimulate the midbrain, you are going to be doing midbrain-type movements with them, which would um, be focused around the activity of creeping. And to stimulate pons-level abilities, you are going to be doing um, crawling on the stomach.
2: All right. And when we come back with Sarge in October, we're going to go into um, more so into a sensory motor evaluation and all of these different aspects, but, you know, Sarge, I just really appreciate how the approach that you propose, that, that you implement, empowers parents to, A, know that there's hope and have optimism and, and therefore, translate that to their child um, and, and let's you know, lets them know that there's something that they can do.
3: Well, you know, I, I think what I'd like to leave your listeners with today, Terry, is the idea that no one's opinion of your child has to become their reality. It was the opinion of many medical doctors that I should be institutionalized at a very early age. And here I sit bringing, you know, health and healing into, the fam- into families from around the country and elsewhere. Um, I've achieved things far beyond what any medical doctor saw as part of my potential at an early age. And I think that's the takeaway message, is that there are answers out there for your kids. And, um, and part of the answer very well may be a program of neurological reorganization.
2: Yeah, that's such a touching point. I always like to say that MD stands for Mother Determined. <laughs> that's, a,
3: that's, a very good, uh, that's a very good use of that term.
2: Well, again, um, I want to thank you for sharing this information that's empowering and logical, a logical approach to discerning and facilitating a child's developmental stages more efficaciously. To our listeners, my guest next week is Dr. Gerald Wooten, author of Detox Diets for Dummies, bringing us information about diet, nutrition, and supplements. Don't forget to place your pre-order for Kim Stagliano's soon-to-be-released bestseller, all I Can Handle, I'm No Mother Teresa, A Life Raising Three Daughters with Autism, published by Skyhorse Publishing and available at Amazon.com. Our colleague Wendy of the National Autism Association has let us know this is a great read. And speaking of, remember to visit the National Autism Association's website at www.nationalautism.org to learn about the exciting National Autism Conference, November 11th through 14th in sunny, beautiful St. Petersburg, Florida. For questions about this program, please email me at tiaranga at oneorg Thank you to this program's sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.